the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts of the program. You can also get podcasts at uh, Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show, both on Facebook and Twitter at Prof Dan on Instagram. And we begin the program with a nice little trap that Mitch McConnell set, particularly for blue states with huge unfunded pension and health care liabilities. States that uh, are increasingly in tenuous positions financially because of the impact of the coronavirus on state coffers, of course, and are looking for federal bailout, federal bailout so they can make their pension payments so they can uh, keep the houses of cards up in places like Illinois and Connecticut and New York, Kentucky, huge unfunded pension liabilities. Well, number one with a bullet on that score is my home state of Illinois and uh, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, the one man mass gathering made the funny papers in response to the uh, offer suggestion by Mitch McConnell that uh, he is open to providing an opportunity for states to declare bankruptcy rather than giving them more unrestricted federal money to prop up their governments. The response, well, first McConnell saying, my guess is the first choice Uh, Their first choice, talking about these governors, Illinois, Connecticut, New York, California, New Jersey. My guess is their first choice would be for the federal government to borrow money from future generations to send it down to them so they don't have to do that. That's not something I'm going to be in favor of. Uh, The uh, whole business of additional assistance for state and local governments needs to be thoroughly evaluated. McConnell's pushing the pause button, but noting that he... uh, is open to the idea of providing a provision in the bankruptcy code that would allow states to file for bankruptcy and reorganize their obligations, obligations they will never be able to pay down. Not without uh, drastic restructuring that none of these governors has shown any inclination to do, right? Just to give you an example, since I know the state of Illinois particularly well, about $200 billion in unfunded state pension and health care liabilities. The state's annual general revenue fund budget is about $40 billion. Right now, we're spending nearly one in four state tax dollars on state pensions. And even in good economic times over the last several years, good economic times, the number, the uh, the amount of unfunded liabilities was actually increasing. 
the benefits are so generous you can't keep up with the obligations as they're accruing even with uh you know r- robust market returns now what do you think happens i mean in the city of chicago for example also on the hit list you have police and fire pensions that are both few, uh, less than 25% funded the the chicago police pension fund projected by their own filings with the state to be insolvent by the end of 2022. That was before the pandemic. How do you think it's doing now? They know. And Mitch McConnell holds all the cards. So when J.B. Pritzker says, look, I'm I'm not going to do that. You know, uh, there are an awful lot of senators on both sides of the aisle that disagree with him, meaning uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Lori Lightfoot saying the same thing. The mayor of Chicago, that is just the the same old, same old from that guy, Mitch McConnell. We're not going bankrupt. That's not going to happen. Okay, No problem. Same talking points, different day. It's what we've come to expect from a person who doesn't have a sense of urgency projecting much, who doesn't care about anything other than a crass political agenda, said Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the triple threat uh, in response to uh, Mitch McConnell. And describe in description of Mitch McConnell. I see. Uh, here's the thing. Let's remember the CARES Act provided $150 billion blank checks to the states, plus $90 billion for the schools, public transit, and Medicaid. That's $240 billion to the states. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reminds us that all state tax revenue during the last three months of 2019 totaled $254 billion. So what the CARES Act did was essentially provide roughly three months of tax collections to the states. Is that enough? No, of course not. They're going to want more. But here's the thing. Mitch McConnell holds the cards. If Republicans will just hold fast, Senate Republicans in particular, but all Republicans, don't allow bailing out either through the front door with uh, funding, a la the CARES Act, or through the back door with the municipal facility that the Fed has set up half a trillion dollars in propping up and buying municipal debt to prop up the bond market and give uh, access to credit markets, to uh, bad bets, to uncredit worthy municipalities like Chicago and states like Illinois do not provide a glide path for them to continue their scam for one minute longer. When there was the, it was sort of a pipe dream, the idea of states being able to declare bankruptcy with uh, federal authorization. That was a pipe dream prior to the outbreak of COVID-19. Now that and, and so it was easy to dismiss by your Governor Murphy's, your Governor Cuomo's, your Governor Pritzker's, your Governor Newsom's, your Governor Bashir, Kentucky. Now that it's a potential, now that Mitch McConnell made it a possibility, they're still saying the same thing. He is throwing, and arguably, this is the argument, he is throwing Illinois a lifeline. We know, and you know, you can't keep up with your obligations. You'll never pay them down. And you have no uh, demonstrated interest in structural reform. So here's my lifeline to you. You know, you want to take you'd rather drown than drown. But why should I tell the residents of Baton Rouge or Austin or Phoenix to bail out the to, to, to bail out the residents of Chicago or New York City or uh, Trenton. Why? What's the what's the argument there? 
There isn't one. All of these uh, were man-made problems at the state level that precede the pandemic have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, Chicago was uh, a tick above junk before the pandemic. Chicago public school system is junk rated. Uh, Illinois, the state of Illinois, same thing. And it was just downgraded a week ago by Fitch to, again, one tick above junk. Why provide cover for them? He has all the cards. Here's the thing. Realpolitik, from a Machiavellian perspective, Mitch McConnell doesn't need Connecticut, doesn't need New York, doesn't need Illinois, doesn't need California, has Kentucky in terms of keeping his Senate Republican majority. So let him twist. You don't want this uh, life preserver? Then don't take it. And they will be forced to come before McConnell begging because there's no way to come up with the revenue that's required to fill the holes that have expanded under the pandemic. You can raise taxes all you want. You can at this point, you can almost cut services all you want and you just can't make it work in the very near term. And by the way, uh, in Illinois, Pritzker is projecting a seven billion dollar deficit and he won't furlough not uh, any state employees won't adjust employee benefits. There's just, you know, no, there, there, I refuse to accept the possibility of any sort of uh, pain sharing in the public sector. There no such thing as unemployment in the public sector. No such thing as a recession in the public sector, much less a depression. Twenty six and a half million first time unemployment filers from the private sector. Over the last five weeks. The incidence of furloughs, public sector layoffs, anything, any sort of adjustment to public sector payrolls, particularly in the states that are worse managed, which are the states that have the highest unfunded pension liabilities, which are the states that are begging for the most direct funding, uh, unencumbered, unlimited blank check funding from the federal government. Don't do it when you have your foot on your opponent's neck press down and when you press down here with respect to these governors in these states you're pressing down on behalf of fiscal sanity for the residents of those states who have otherwise been captured by the public sector unions in new york and connecticut and new jersey and illinois who those not in the public sector unions exist to serve and finance exist as spare parts to be used as needed to prop up their financiers, meaning the left's financiers, and their foot soldiers. Great trap. Tell those governors and mayors, work it out with your financiers and your foot soldiers, or don't. Your call. Down on the corner, out in the street, we're in the the seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, prediction yesterday was 4.5 million first-time unemployment filers this week. The number is 4.4 million. It's pretty accurate. I would have taken the over. I'm glad it was the under. But 4.4 million is a whole heck of a lot of people. That's 26.5 million people in five weeks. 
just to give order of magnitude, some context here to these numbers, it took about six or seven times as long during the Great Recession of 07 to 09 to get to that number of unemployed as it did as it did the last five weeks. All the job gains since the Great Recession have now been wiped out. But I know it's for non-essential people, so that now I'm not worried. Andrew Cuomo set me straight on that. If you want to you want to work, no problem. Be essential like an abortionist or a licensed dope dealer. And then you can go go to work. No problem. I, we also are finding um, the limits to uh, my goodwill towards uh, the business community when it comes to things like the payroll protection program. The limit was hit when I read this from Jim Vanderhei over at Axios. Axios qualifies for a PPP loan. Uh, we have taken a financial hit like other small businesses. Our physical event business is gone until the crisis subsides. Some uh, ad buyers are pulling back to measure the economic fallout. Oh, do tell us, Jim. The media is getting crushed by the economic fallout. We qualify for just shy of $5 million, along with quick moves we made early in the crisis to reduce non-personnel expenses. This loan assures we can avoid layoffs and pay cuts for 200 people on the staff for the rest of the year, regardless of how much the economy deteriorates. Now, um, he does note that um, we are in somewhat unique position by both being a media company, which covers government and business, and now receiving five million dollars in government funds. So we want to be fully transparent about our thinking and his thinking is what I just described. So they'll make sure to highlight the fact that uh, they received uh, payroll protection program funding when they continue their uninterrupted advocacy for big government. Oh, good. The big government press corps has just been the big government press corps ideologically as fellow travelers. Now they're going to be the big government press corps literally because of a financial relationship with government. The press should not be media companies that do news reporting like this. The fourth estate is supposed to right be a check on the other three estates going back to the originations of that term. The ruling elites. Well, how are you a check on the ruling elites when you are financed by the ruling elites? Does that undermine one's credibility at all? For more on the economics of this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Jonathan Honig, the capitalist pig, founding uh, member of the Capitalist Pig Hedge Fund, Fox News contributor, author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Dan, great to be with you. But there is no economics in all of this. There what you, you just mentioned, and there was a, a kind of a very concise overview of all the graft, all the misallocation, all the misappropriation going on. There's no economics in that. You know, no private investors coming to say, let me give this billionaire's company or let me invest in you know, this failing business of millions and millions of dollars. This is 100 percent government at work. And I think this is this is my fear from an economic perspective, Dan. And you've been talking about this for weeks now. But, you know, all this stimulus, all this intervention, bailing out this one, not bailing out that one, uh, pumping money into this market, not in that market. This is going to create a fallout that's going to last much longer than any supposed virus ever could. That's what I'm most worried about for the economy right now. Well, you know, it's interesting. I uh, talked to Paul Kaplan, who is the uh, research head for Morningstar in Canada. And he graphed the uh, recessions and depressions over the last hundred years in America, going back to uh, the recession coming out of World War One. And it was interesting. And he sort of created a pain index. And, and the pain index was largely predicated on the depth and the duration. 
And so the job loss that we've suffered over the last five weeks tracks the Great Depression of the of 1929. And what you find from his research is the depths of a depression and this, you know, sort of holding constant the policy choices made by government. But to some extent, really, since the recession of the early 20s, where they went the opposite way, cut spending, cut taxes, tight money. It has been this response since the Great Depression forward. It's always been a government driven response. So um, there's some reason to believe what I'm about to say makes some sense, which is the average of the recessions over that period from the Great Depression to this one took about five years to get to the trough, took about 10 years to get to the market high pre-recession. So the whole talk of V-shaped recovery, even U-shaped recovery, with each passing day, does it not become just mindless happy talk? We're talking about a long slog back. And for no reason, Dan, you, you, I remember you very adamantly back in 2008 advocating against the bailouts. The 2008 stimulus package was about $800 billion. We know that what that produced, that produced the slowest recovery in modern history. Dan, this CARES Act is $1.8 trillion. It's a trillion dollars more. And what's so sobering this time around is that, unlike in 2008, you have essentially no one opposing the spending, opposing the intervention. And even look at something, you know, Dan, like uh, like the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were essentially nationalized by the government back in 2008. We're still dealing, dealing with that, just as we're dealing with so many of those great Depression-era government controls that were instituted by Hoover and Roosevelt back in the day. So our listeners, Dan, your, your listeners are lone voices on this, because all throughout government to call us for more spending, more intervention, more control. That's what's wrecking the market. I think that's what's wrecking people's portfolios right now more than more than any virus. Uh, I want to get back to the gloom. Jonathan, you were you were talking about uh, the recovery from the Great Recession. And re- remember what was concurrent with that. It was a look back at the last 20 years for middle income families to say, I- I've been running in place and losing ground for the last two decades under Republicans, under Democrats. I've been running in place and losing ground. And until the last couple, three years under Trump, with particularly tax relief and deregulation, you have um, seen people stagnate. And uh, and 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 so the quality of life, their standard of living was declining over the last two decades. And it started to pick back up again in the first three years of Trump. What you're looking at right now, uh, if the recovery is as slow or uh, arguably even slower coming out of this than it was the Great Recession is a reduced standard of living, quality of life for a generation. Yeah, it could be or could be more, Dan. Your knowledge of history, particular economic history, I think people should, should learn a bit of it. And Japan is probably the best example. You know, their bubble economy burst in 2000 in the 1989 their response was not that 1920s uh, uh, model that you mentioned of, of laissez-faire. They've been stimulating for years and years. And what's happened is, as you said, the average quality of life for the Joe Six-Pack, that all the stimulus is supposed to help, that's gone consistently downward. And that's my, that's my fear for the economy. Not that the market's going to plunge necessarily another 20 or 30 percent, although it certainly could, but that we're setting ourselves up for, as you said, Dan, decades of slow growth, slow in- innovation, that's always been the result whenever this type of stimulus has been tried. The more stimulus, the slower the recovery. He is the capitalist pig, Jonathan Honig, Fox News contributor, author of a new textbook for Americanism, 
the politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Be well. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Wall Street Journal editorial board opining. Much of the harm from the coronavirus is unavoidable. But it would be nice if politicians didn't compound the damage by ignoring the laws of economics. The worst blunder so far on that score is the $600 increase in federal jobless benefits that is already undermining the economic recovery. And the ed board cites specifically an op-ed that, pre- that appeared uh, on their pages the, uh, the previous day from uh, Kurt Huffman, the owner of Chef Stable LLC in Portland, Oregon, uh, that uh, works with local chefs to open and operate their restaurants and uh, had to lay off some 700 employees and uh, was suggesting that even if the state of Oregon, the city of Portland, gave the green light to begin the phased-in reopening. His restaurants can't reopen until August because he doesn't have a workforce that's incentivized to work. They're making more on unemployment as per what the Wall Street Journal editorial board said. But perhaps uh, the Wall Street Journal, Kurt Huffman, me, everybody who passed an Econ 101 course has it wrong. I uh, give you Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the topic. There's a lot that we could be doing right now, but ultimately the... I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going, going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Kurt Huffman, the owner of Chef Stable LLC. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. AOC right, you know, until you pay a, a livable wage, as she would define it, then uh, your employees shouldn't even think about coming back to work. Boy, that's a conversation I don't really want to get messed up in. But what I can tell you is that we... Here in Portland and with our restaurant group, the lowest wage that we have is $15 an hour. Cost of living out here is expensive, but we also have aggressive tip sharing policies so the cooks get extra money. You know, at $16 an hour, we're able to provide, I think, at least a wage that seems to be adequate for uh, employees. It's not a lot, but it's certainly much higher than people in our industry are paying elsewhere. But the problem you have, as you detailed and you provided the math, which was helpful, to members of Congress in particular, that the problem is you have uh, your employees say, look, you know, no offense, but I make more not working through at least July till these enhanced unemployment benefits run out and we'll see what happens. And then if I need to go back to work, then I'll go back to work and go back to perhaps to the salary I was making. But I want to take advantage of the extra money while I can, which is perfectly rational. That's exactly right. I guess you made reference to Economics 101. I mean, we all learned in that class of the idea of rational actors, rational economic actors. And it's not that people that are saying, hey, you know, I don't want to come back to work are lazy. That's not at all. Right. I mean, anybody that's worked in the restaurant industry knows this is a tough industry. 
This is an industry made up of fighters and grinders. So they all know how to work hard. And most of them are working two jobs or working well in excess of 40 hours a week. But it doesn't make any sense right now to go back to work. I mean, right now, our line cooks on unemployment are making $25 an hour. So why would they come back to work? It just doesn't make sense. And and what does that mean for your business and the businesses that your business supports if if you're going to be locked into an August 1 timeline at the earliest? We're just going to wait. Well, I, I but, but but I mean, the question, I guess, is yeah, how many of these restaurants will be around come August one? Well, how, how many will survive? I mean, this is the conversation that people are having about particularly the restaurant industry, which is tough enough to make a go of it, to, generally speaking, in good times, much less something like this. How, how many are going to survive? Number one, the, the shutdown and all that's implicated there. And then number two. Uh, the uh, inability to get the personnel they need, even were they to uh, operate on some uh, limited basis. It is such a complicated situation right now. For me, the the $600 a week issue is really a problem of restarting. Whether they're still around or not, that was supposed to be something that the PPP plan helped uh, address. So to the extent uh, that we are able to secure PPP money, and in, in the first round of funding, zero of our 23 businesses uh, receive PPP funding. Really? Um, if To the extent that we're able to get PPP funding, we will still be around because you're allowed to spend it on rent. And right now, our employees are you know, collecting unemployment. The people right now that are the most in jeopardy are, are the business owners and, and the partners of the, business, of the businesses. Um, but I think most of us can survive until August 1st. But the idea of competing against the government to get people to come back to work uh, just makes it, makes it so difficult that I just don't think it's worth it to try to reopen completely until that date. Uh, when we come back with Kurt Huffman, the owner of Chef Stable LLC, I want to talk a little bit about the PPP program and his personal experience because a lot of owner-operators of businesses have been sharing theirs both before the uh, refill occurred and since the refill is, uh, well, and uh, before the refill was about to occur and uh, since the fund ran out of funds. More with Kurt Huffman right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Kurt Huffman. He is the owner of Chef Stable LLC, which is a uh, business based in Portland, Oregon, that works with local chefs to open and operate their restaurants. And he had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal talking about how uh, the government policy with respect to unemployment insurance and the $600 enhanced benefits, $600 of enhanced benefits, has essentially uh, put him on an August 1 timeline at the earliest to reopen his businesses because it makes more sense because they make more money to stay on unemployment with respect to his employees. Uh, you mentioned the the PPP and um, there's been a lot of uh, a discussion about uh, number one, uh, profitable and bigger businesses that got PPP money were smaller and more marginalized businesses didn't. Uh, number two, Big banks not perhaps being as attentive to some of their clients as the community banks that are a little bit uh, smaller and thus more agile to get uh, the loan applications processed and cleared. And in point of fact, uh, there was a good op-ed by Andres Diaz, who's an immigrant entrepreneur from Colombia in New York, 
uh, working with Chase, trying to get a uh, loan through the PPP before it ran out of money. Uh, 39 staff members at her name was Carmen restaurant bar, in New York city. And frankly, he not, he's not blaming the government here. He's essentially blaming chase for being a little bit lethargic and serving his businesses needs and, and getting in queue for, for, uh, the loan money while also suggesting that, you know, Hey, I don't blame Danny Meyer at shake shack for accessing the funds, but it, those funds shouldn't have been made of, available to a company like shake shack, which of course has now very notably returned the $10 million it initially received. Your experience, you mentioned before the break that your 23 businesses, none of them got payroll protection, uh, forgivable loan funding the first go around. Um, your perspective on that program and, um, and whether or not you're going to, your businesses will be pursuing that if there is a second round. Oh, we're pursuing it for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a lifeline for us. Um, our restaurants typically keep about two months of payroll uh, in their bank accounts um, because you just don't ever just shut down, you know, overnight. Right. And so that money varies from, you know, $40,000 to $100,000. But our last payrolls were huge. We had to pay out, uh, you know, vacation pay, blah, blah, blah. So most of them were left with anywhere from $20,000 to $65,000 in their bank account. And that's not enough money to restart a restaurant. I mean, it's not like an office building where you just shut the doors reopen and people start coming back in I and mean, there's a huge expense involved in restarting a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And so we're just, it, it's a lifeline to be able to reopen. Um, we had the misfortune of also working with Chase um, oh, on all of our applications and Chase had enormous success with their corporate banking practice. Uh, and that's, you know, that's where Potbelly and Ruth Chris uh, worked with Chase and they did really remarkable job of securing uh, the corporate clients, their funding, but the uh, small business banking was a total fiasco. And uh, my understanding is that Chase had the worst success rate in the industry. Um, and like you point out, the smaller regional banks just dance circles around them. Here in Portland, there's story after story of uh, smaller banks securing 80 to 100% funding for their clients, which is just remarkable. Same in um, Chicago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. And so, this Sunday, after I received an email saying there's no more funds, I started getting emails from Chase saying, we want to update you on the status of your loans. And they showed me the status bar showing four different steps. And the first one was, your, it's been received. And the next step is payroll verification. And then SBA approval and then funding. And my loans were at, they've been received. So I submitted mine uh, the day the... Uh, the, the portal opened with Chase, April 3rd. Uh, and then two weeks later, I'm getting status updates saying, we've received your application and they're about to go into review. So they just sat there. I mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, we were as proactive as possible. Mm-hmm. We had our accountants, our payroll providers, uh, our lawyers make sure that we were doing everything right on the forms. <laughs> they just sat there in this morass of applications. So it's a fiasco, and we've actually pivoted to work with a, uh, a smaller bank here locally that we feel very confident in. But if we don't get the funds, we'll probably close. A, we'll have to. We won't be able to reopen probably a third of our establishments. Right, and 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 that represents so then a third of the 700 employees you laid off, I presume. Yes. Yes, sir. So uh, you know, again, here you're talking about hundreds of employees, and this this metastasizing. Uh, this against the backdrop uh, today, right? Four point 
four million first-time unemployment filers. That's 20, 26 and a half million in the last five weeks. I mean, as an entrepreneur, um, as, as you watch this unfold, like everybody else, what are you thinking about just entrepreneurial capitalism in America uh, right now and in, into the near future? You know, it's all bets are off. Um, in many cases, especially with the $600 a week thing, I, when I graduated from college, I, uh, I used to play rugby and I, and I moved to France um, and I had a weird uh, professional experience of actually opening a, a business in France, uh, a brewery with restaurants. And so the first 10 years of my professional life was uh, running restaurants in France. And I can tell you that it was incredibly difficult to do that there because you were constantly competing with uh, unemployment benefits to hire people. Um, and so in many ways, it feels a lot like uh, like my first 10 years uh, in France. And it feels like we're kind of going there where we're all of a sudden culturally uh, being introduced to incentives that just simply haven't been part uh, of the business ecosystem previously. And we're going to have to be dealing with that for a while, I think because I agree that it's incredibly important to make sure people have resources to stay afloat. But as you start funneling money towards people like they did in France, uh, it creates incentives and disincentives that uh, I don't think that we properly thought through. And so culturally in a country like the United States, where the importance of work, um, you know, not just for uh, how, uh, not just for economic purposes, right. But also for personal purposes and just for the feeling of fulfillment. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, these questions are, are, are going to become more and more poignant, I think, as this moves forward. Uh, and I hope we don't lose sight of, um, of kind of the, the cultural importance of work uh, as, part of, uh, as part of American culture. Uh, sober reflections from Kurt Huffman, the owner of Chef Stable LLC, Portland, Oregon. Uh, check out uh, his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Making the Rounds, if you haven't. Our restaurants can't reopen until August. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with the loan business as well as the actual business in the coming months. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So Harvard University recanted on the return of the $9 million they're expected to receive under the CARES Act through the Department of Education. They were going to not accept it after President Trump called them out the other day that uh, Boston Herald reported on Wednesday evening. Harvard said in a statement that the, they are rejecting the cash infusion after pressure built around the payout. Then today... They uh, had a change of heart. They will accept because they never applied for it, never wanted it. Uh, It's just being distributed through the provisions of the CARES Act funding that is uh, being provided through the Department of Education to provide assistance to low-income students around the the country, low-income college students, of course. Uh, So they're going to take it after all. See, This financial assistance will be on top of the support the university already provides to students, including assistance with travel, providing direct aid for living expenses of those in need, supporting students' transition to online education. They also uh, address the uh, issue of their 
41 billion dollar endowment, the largest in the in the country. They say, you know, you have to understand we don't have flexibility. Uh, It's not like taking cash out of a bank account. Yeah, we know that. But okay, go ahead. It's limited by the fact it must be maintained in perpetuity in perpetuity. And that's largely restricted. Ties up about uh, 80 percent of Harvard's endowed funds, uh, donors requesting their money be set aside for a specific purpose. Ties about 80 percent of their endowed funds, huh? Gosh, a little back of the envelope map. What's 20 percent of 40 billion? Eight billion. I guess that's just not enough. They can't figure out either through their donor class that helped build a 40 billion dollar endowment or uh, uh, by making a special solicitation how to keep dining room workers employed on the payroll during this or how to provide their own financial assistance if they want to enhance it to the students that are getting financial assistance at present. It's a joke. It's tone deaf. And the president should come quick and come hard with retribution. As far as I'm concerned, use the Defense Production Act to seize Harvard and turn it into the world's largest factory for producing toilet paper, a twofer. I wonder why there was a change of heart, too, after the public criticism of Trump and the announcement they'd rescind. A Harvard survey done by the Crimson newspaper, the political affiliations, ideological, philosophical affiliations of the professorate at Harvard. 38% describe themselves as very liberal, which means communist. 41% would describe themselves as liberal, which means communist. 19% describe themselves as moderate, which means socialist. 1.46% describe themselves as conservative. (laughs) Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren accounted for a majority of the presidential campaign contributions that came from the Harvard professorate, the two of them. Donald Trump, seven-tenths of one percent of the total contributions from the Harvard professor to presidential candidates. Yeah, I wonder if that has anything to do with the decision to rescind the previous decision. This is Dan Proft. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. At uh, Wednesday night's task force briefing, you had uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, who is the director of the CDC, open up the show by clarifying some remarks he made in a Washington Post interview that seemed to suggest that uh, the worst is yet to come, yet to come this fall and into the winter. He wanted to clarify that, saying. When I commented yesterday that there was a possibility of the fall winter, uh, uh, next fall and winter, it could be more diffi- difficult, more complicated. When we had two respiratory illnesses circulating at the same time, influenza and the coronavirus 19. But I think it's really important to emphasize what I didn't say. I didn't say that this was going to be worse. I said it was going to be more complicated or more difficult and potentially complicated because we'll have flu and coronavirus circulating at the same time. 
I want to emphasize that we continue to build the nation's public health infrastructure to ensure that we have the capacity to stay in the containment mode. Those of you who heard me talk before, I've told you that in January and February, up to February 27, 28, this nation had 14 cases. Uh, we were in the containment mode. And then, unfortunately, the virus overwhelmed where we got into extreme mitigation. We are building that public health capacity now to make sure that we stay in the containment mode uh, for the upcoming fall and winter uh, season. So we will not need to resort to the kind of mitigation that we had to this spring. And uh, so that's that on the uh, clarification. Uh, Mike Pence stepped to the podium a little bit later in the briefing to give us an update on testing, which is Imp- the testing and contract tracing, the f- focus on nursing homes, all of that's important. And it's fine to have this discussion prospectively. So people saying, well, why are we even talking about the fall and winter with what we have to deal with right now? Well, because you want a game plan for the future in a way that we didn't for the present so that the present doesn't repeat itself in the future. That makes some sense to me. Here's Pence. We want to be able to test anyone who has the symptoms that may be coronavirus and be able to test them quickly. Secondly, we want to do the kind of contact tracing, and Dr. Redfield and his team are deploying CDC teams in every state in America to be able to find out everyone that that person has been in contact with and test them. But if you look right underneath that, uh, what we're directing states to do is be prepared to deploy testing resources first and foremost to nursing homes and long-term care facilities so that we can monitor any potential outbreak of the coronavirus among the most vulnerable population. For more on these and other topics, we're pleased to be joined by Scott Whitaker. He's the CEO of AdvaMed, and he's a former chief of staff with the Department of Health and Human Services. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, Dan. Good to be with you. Uh, Good to have you and uh, your expertise of being uh, in this arena previously and and still in the space with AdvaMed as well. With respect to what uh, both Redfield and Pence said, did that all jibe with you? Does that that make sense in terms of what uh, you should be hearing from CDC prospectively and what you should be hearing from the administration in present? Yeah, I think that's right. I think what Dr. Redfield said, what he actually said versus what you saw some of the reports suggest he said is correct. It is what we're doing from a diagnostic perspective, trying to ramp up over the course of late spring, summer. So when fall hits, we'll have tests both for the flu and also tests that are widely available for the coronavirus as well. It allows us to distinguish which disease it is and then treat accordingly. And he's right, it, it is going to create a challenge for the healthcare system potentially, but it's why we're scaling up to be prepared for that. I, I also think that the vice president's exactly right. Test people who are symptomatic, that's the important thing to do. Contact trace, understand where people who have the disease have gone. And then today, given the resources that we have, let's focus on the most needy. And I think that's the appropriate way to manage the disease in its current uh, state. Let's take a step back. Let's go uh, way back into the time capsule uh, when you were the chief of staff of Tommy Thompson, right, at HHS? Right. So that's more than a decade ago now. And what were the conversations that you would have within HHS across agencies about things like pandemic preparedness? So that was one of the things we identified very early that we were very underprepared for when 
when we took over HHS in 2001, we built a tremendous apparatus of preparedness activities and built a new office in there, hired a 50 to 100 people to come in and try to staff preparedness for a series of public health outbreaks, including a pandemic where the focus at that time was more flu related, as opposed to today, the coronavirus, which is a little bit different than that. But the structures that are in place today are because of the work we did back there to set things up. The one thing I'll say in defense of the current administration, those who are critical of them, you can never be fully prepared for a novel virus to hit the country. And this one hit very, very quickly. And the question to me is not, were you fully prepared? The question is more, how well did you respond once you were hit with this novel virus? And my sense is there have been a couple of hiccups, but as a general rule, they've responded quite well. And what they've done in reaching out to private industry like ours, from the ventilator space to the diagnostic testing space to engage private industry to build capacity, is the right way to do it. It's the model we set up back in 2001-2002 after 9-11 with the anthrax outbreak, with concerns about smallpox and other pathogens. I think that's still the right model, uh, but we can't scale up overnight, right? It just can't happen as quickly as people would like it to, understandably. But here, here's the thing about testing and going back to February, which is you know sort of that lost month that people uh, continue yeah. to focus upon. With respect to Secretary Azar, and then in conjunction with the CDC and FDA, and and Fauci's admitted, you know, clearly there were missteps. Uh, we made this mistake. We had this test that wasn't working, and we had to recall it and and promulgate a new test, and so on and so forth. Did that go on too long? That that confusion and that lack of competence, because you know, in the three weeks in February where it was CDC, FDA, and HHS, there were about three thousand tests completed. Once they animated Roche, March 13th, in the next three weeks, there were 1.1 million tests completed at the time. So is there legitimate criticism to say there was too much lethargy in enlisting the private sector to scale testing at the level it needed to be scaled? I I think in hindsight, Dan, that's probably right. I hesitate to criticize the secretary because when you're hit with something like that, you do what you know at the time. And CDC, in his defense, should have had that test up ready and not in a contaminated fashion so we could begin that process sooner. That wasn't a secretarial decision. It was someone else that made that decision. And it's unfortunate that that happened. And there's no question it set us back a few weeks at least. But to their credit, they pivoted from what didn't appear to be working to something that would work. And that's, I think, because there was a plan in place to do that if necessary. And since that time, they've done, I think, quite a good job. I talked to Dr. Hahn at FDA fairly often. And this is a guy who was new on the job at the time, a very smart hire by the president, to be candid with you. And he's done a tremendous job scaling up the work of the FDA to get these tests on market quickly. One of the CEOs that I work with said to me, he had a test that normally would have taken about a year to be approved by the FDA that was approved in just about a week. And that's pretty remarkable. In a time of emergency, that's what you need from the federal government, that type of engagement. And we're pleased with that. But to, Dan, to your earlier point, there's no question we were late, right, in getting the test to the market. Uh, it's the reality we're dealing with today and, and trying to handle it as best we can. Going back to the FDA for, for a minute, um, and I know uh, Dr. Hahn is getting high marks, but Dr. Gottlieb and his group over at the American Enterprise Institute are suggesting that the government, generally speaking, but the FDA is point here, need to uh, focus more, provide more public attention to uh, antiviral therapies, the remde- remdesivir that has shown some promise, the, the clinical trials that are going on. And Dr. Hahn spoke to that this week, um, but they suggest that, look, the, the way that you 
expedite the biomedical response like what happened with ventilators is to highlight it, to say, we got to get this to market. We got to get this to market. We need X amount of this. We need X amount of that. He, uh, Ryan Streeter over there, who's the director of domestic policy studies at American Enterprise Institute, said, since the default mode of federal agencies is caution, which in turn translates into lost time, added pressure generates greater speed and attention to timelines. No pharma company or scientist wants to damage people's lives by moving forward recklessly, but neither do they want the government to slow them down unnecessarily. May more emphasis even has a real effect on on uh, turnaround time. Yeah, I, I agree. More emphasis is valuable right now. Unfortunately, in the in the biotechnology and pharma space, the evidence that sometimes you need in a full clinical trial just simply takes longer to build. Um, and I get the sense that they're trying to build that very quickly, as quickly as they can. It is, Dan, I think why the focus on therapeutics right now is more important than the focus on vaccines. We know how long the timeline is for the best vaccine possible. And it's, a, it's 12 to 18 months, honestly. There's not any way you can scale up faster than that. But when you have therapeutics on the market that you can test the validity of those against a new novel virus, you can get evidence a lot more quickly than that. He is Scott Whitaker, CEO of AdvaMed and former chief of staff with HHS. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. So there have been a number of uh, antibody uh, studies that have been done and published in the last week. Santa Clara County, this was the... uh, Stanford University study, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, a writing point on that. You have uh, USC, uh, L.A. County study. Both suggest that uh, the prevalence of infection is significantly higher than the number of cases reported. I'm not sure that's a particular surprise. Everybody suggested that was the case. All the medical professionals expected that to be the case. It was an argument or uh, over projection, some saying maybe it's two, three percent of the population that is asymptomatic but has been infected and developed antibodies as a result. Some suggesting it could be 25 to 50 percent, and you're approaching, if not getting to herd immunity. For more on the studies and the implications of those studies, as well as the potential accuracy of those studies, something we always have to question with these models and uh, the results being gleaned from studies. We're pleased to be joined by Luis Pedro Calo. He is a principal investigator of the Big Data Biology Lab at Fudan University in Shanghai and a science blogger at metarabbit.wordpress.com. Luis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. So you uh, wrote about uh, the Stanford study in Santa Clara County, uh, California, and there were other people that uh, questioned the methodology as you did in, in your piece where you asked, did anyone in Santa Clara County get COVID-19, asking that sort of passive aggressively? Explain to us, the layman, what the problem is with the methodology associated with that study. So that study makes several different arguments. And the first fundamental argument is they have to show that their test really is very good. Because when you are trying to capture something that's quite rare in the population, if your test is sometimes wrong, even just one in a hundred times wrong, 
um, then you won't be able to get an accurate measurement. And all of their conclusions are based on getting just 50 people positive out of over 3,000. There were there was uh, other criticisms that suggest because they recruited people for the um, to be tested the serological test uh, through Facebook ads. There may have been a selection bias as well. We know there are because we know that some people have said that yes, I I went to take the test because I suspected I had it, and so at least in a handful of cases where people have come forward and said yes, I saw the ad. I had had symptoms before, I wasn't sure, so I thought, oh, great, here's my opportunity to have a test, because the tests are not otherwise available. Right. Now, now the uh, USC uh, LA, County, LA County Health Department uh, study, what's your uh, impression of the methodology and, and thus the accuracy there? I think they have not, at least when I checked, they haven't released a lot of information on that, but some of the same concerns apply particularly whether their test is good enough to pick up you know these very rare events because we're still talking about when you test when you test individuals only one out of 100 is testing positive now so yeah so when it comes to this I, you know as i said at the outset uh, you have uh, former fda uh, commissioner dr scott gottlieb suggested that he would guess that maybe 2 or 3% of the american population had had uh, the exposure, uh, developed antibodies. Um, uh, you know, others suggest anywhere between 25 and 50 percent, but but everybody sort of admits we don't know because we haven't done the requisite testing and, and with the confidence and the accuracy. And then compare that to other countries where the reports out of Sweden, some from state epidemiologists, uh, is that they believe they're approaching herd immunity. Is there anywhere in the world, as far as you know, where there has been the sort of rigorous antibody testing that can tell you exactly what the percentage of the population that's asymptomatic but has been affected, and so how far along so, different countries are in, in generating herd immunity. Does that exist anywhere? I think, unfortunately, it only exists in some of the smaller towns in northern Italy that have been heavily, heavily affected, so where you did see, uh, unfortunately, heavy mortality. So those are not hopeful signs. And so develop that a little bit more, those where you did have, I, I remember that one northern Italian town where ev- like everyone was tested or just about everyone in that community. So and what did that what did that indicate to us in terms of uh, in, t- in, in terms of uh, lethality as well as uh, as spread and in, in, in uh, against you know people that developed antibodies? So I don't have all of the numbers off the top of my head here, but it was consistent with this being a really dangerous disease as opposed to the more optimistic view from these uh, California studies, which are indicating a, a disease that's not so much worse than the flu. So, so the Italian studies are unfortunately pessimistic. So uh, we're still in this place then, it's, it's, it seems to me, that where we don't really have a denominator. And so we don't really have a handle on the lethality. And this is why you see deaths per 100,000 or deaths per million, whichever metric yep. you want to use, just all over the map and, and, and moving around quite a bit as well. Yes, and the, the lethality is also going to depend on what else is happening. You know, if you have an older population or more obesity in your population, as well as, as your healthcare system not being able to cope, then you will see higher lethality. So it's both the disease and the environment. Um, what do you uh, make of the stories coming out of uh, South Korea and China now uh, elsewhere about the 
reinfection of people that allegedly had had the virus, had uh, beat the virus and then got infected again. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of debate about, uh, you know, the accuracy of those stories and the underlying information associated with them. Those are also hard to evaluate. Uh, it may be that the, you had individuals that had a, a false negative test and then they have a, another positive test, but but it's hard to evaluate whether they were really completely cured that at that first negative or so I think uh, there's a lot we don't know yet. What about on on the efficacy of lockdowns? The uh, suggestion again by a former top Swedish epidemiologist is that uh, the only thing that we have real good science on in terms of the the uh, strategies and tactics that are being pursued is washing hands. Everything else uh, from social distancing to uh, to to shelter in place orders you know, the science is actually relatively thin just in terms of actual uh, the body of evidence, if you will. I don't disagree with that. But the fact is, it's impossible to do, you know, to say that, let's say that we'd have half the cities do social distancing and half the cities not do social distancing. Um, this would this would give us good data, but it would be, first of all, unethical and very impractical so we have to sort of forge ahead with our best guess. Uh, and our best guess is that social distancing works. Um, our best guess is that maybe masks help a bit. Um, even if we're not 100% confident, we have to make some decisions. No, I agree. And I appreciate your your response because we're just not getting that sort of measured response from a lot of politicians. Hey, look, this is our best guess. It's what we believe. We're relying on people that are experts. But we recognize that uh, there are things that we don't know, too. There's a margin of error for everything that we're doing because so much is still unknown. That sort of humility, I think, would help to uh, to get uh, to persuade people who may be a bit skeptical about uh, the uh, uh, tactics that need to be employed. He is uh, Luis Pedro Kahlo. He's a principal investigator of the Big Data Biology Lab at Fudan University in Shanghai and a science blogger at metarabbit.wordpress.com. Uh, Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Dan Henninger writing in the Wall Street Journal about how we'll live with coronavirus prospectively. Uh, notes what used to be an axiom. It's not among half the population, at least these days. Uh, writes Henninger, economic suicide is not normal behavior. Right. Economic suicide is not normal behavior. Uh, what we're seeing now, Henninger writes, is politicians low on persuasive arguments grasp at marginal fixes. Please see Gretchen Whitmer as Exhibit A. He uh, goes on to contend that blue states such as New York, New Jersey, Illinois and California can persist with tight lockdowns if they wish. But other less densely populated states with better coronavirus data won't wait. And of course, we're seeing that from uh, the Mid-South in Tennessee to the Southeast in Georgia to Big Sky in Montana, Texas. He uh, also notes, look, here's the deal with New York. Uh, New York is 
an unf- has become an unfortunate metaphor for the virus in the United States, writes Henninger, and the U.S.'s reopening problems. But it's atypical. There is no place in New York that has the mass commuting and business district density in the rest of the country. No place like New York. Uh, Henninger concludes, the whole country um, just did coronavirus D-Day and we survived. With or without official permission, with or without New York and California, the American people are going to self-release from their coronavirus isolation and get back to business. These aren't Trumpian mobs. It is not the rise of anti-science. It is humanity reestablishing social equilibrium. And for that, we don't need instruction. Well, but uh, for the politicians to sign on, you need a plan. And you need a plan that contemplates both the best case scenario on the public health side and uh, the most pessimistic scenario. And somebody who has done that in conjunction with some of his colleagues, put together a plan that is, is Ovik Roy, who's the co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's a senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center and editor of for Forbes Opinion. Ovik, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? Good. So um, in this uh, piece that I was uh, referring to, you look at your sort of best case, you know, optimistic scenario for testing, identification, modeling, decision making and worst case scenario for all of the above and uh, develop a a strategy for a phased reopening with either scenario, which is good because uh, it seems like it's still a guessing game which scenario we're going to get. So why don't you lay out uh, some of the high points of the strategic approach you would recommend? Yeah, so, I mean, basically the way I boil it down is in certain ways we're way more pessimistic than the conventional wisdom about how things are going to go, and in certain ways we're way more optimistic than the conventional wisdom. We're more pessimistic because what we've been told for the last month is that, well, I know this lockdown is tough, but you're going to have to stick it out and, and just, Hold out and be patient because as soon as we get testing up and running and scaled up and we get new treatments for the disease and we build up our immunity and we build up a vaccine, then you can go back to normal. Life can go back to normal. And the the the, the precipitating thing that, that, that got us to, to write this paper was our concern that we may not meet those tests. We may not be able to scale up testing to the degree that some public health types think we can. We may not be able to develop a treatment in the near term. We may not. We may never develop a vaccine. We may, may never build up enough immunity to the virus. And if we do those things, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit in economic lo- lockdown for months and years? Of that's course what, not. We that's, can't. That's what Zeke Emanuel recommends. Well, I mean, you know, I uh, I totally disagree with that. I mean, that's we're, we are one month of lockdown has been incredibly catastrophic for our economy. About 30 million people unemployed. Who knows, uh, you know, how, how many businesses have closed Two more than two trillion dollars of, of debt increase from federal spending. I mean, we can we cannot every week matters because, as we note in the paper, the average small business has less than a month's worth of cash on hand. So they can't continue to operate. They're going to have a lot of these businesses are going to have to close down for good. And some already have because they're not going to they're going to run out of money. Uh, Ovik, um, Ovik let's let, yeah, let's let's hold it there. I'm going to hold I'll just hold you over and we'll pick it up there on, on definitions, uh, what we can't do. And then uh, some thoughts on what we can do and what we should do more with Ovik Roy, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. 
senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center, editor for Forbes Opinion, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Ovik Roy. He's the co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity, senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center editor for Forbes opinion. And we're talking about the strategy that he and some colleagues have developed for bringing people back to work during COVID-19, regardless of how well the public health response is, because it needs to happen per the economic devastation already wrought. And what is uh, looming in the near future, if uh, there isn't some phased return to work, Uh, Ovik, I'll let you pick it up from there. That's where we left off. Yeah. So the, you know, we started with before the break saying, look, we can't uh, we can't continue. The, the economic destruction is too great, and 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 businesses are closing, and many for good because they don't have the cash cushion. So we've got to think about ways to reopen the economy, even if COVID-19 continues to be a feature of our life, even if people are still getting infected and even getting hospitalized due to this disease. So that's where our plan starts. Our plan starts with saying, okay. What can we do that's measured and reasonable and responsible, even if infections continue to be a part of the landscape? And the basic fact that we take advantage of in designing our plan is that COVID-19 seems to disproportionately affect the elderly. Mm -hmm. Almost all of the cases of death and hospitalization are occurring in people over 65. And the handful that aren't are occurring in middle-aged people with heart disease, high blood pressure, other pre-existing chronic conditions. So young people, people under 30, are basically not dying of this disease by and large. I mean, they're, they're a handful of isolated cases, but in general, they're not. And that means that we can do more to reopen the schools in particular and also reopen workplaces to younger workers. I mean, the irony of this disease is the vast majority of people who are really getting hospitalized and dying are over 65. The vast majority of our workforce is under 65. Right. And yet those are the people who are being forced to stay home. Let's talk about let's start with school, because uh, I, I think that's that's the the leading concern, maybe even more so than their jobs. Leading concern is getting the kids back to school for so many parents. And what does that look like? Uh, I, my morning show I do in Chicago, we spoke with uh, uh, University of Chicago professors doing some of the modeling on which Governor Pritzker in Illinois is basing his decisions. And she was uh uncertain as to whether schools could reopen in the fall in Illinois. And that, of course, is going to send shockwaves throughout the uh, Chicagoland and, and Illinois communities. But, but so, so talk, talk to us about reopening schools around the country where the people are otherwise facing the prospect of maybe not. Yeah, the biggest problem here, Dan, is that there are so many, all these, all these uh, politicians who are deferring solely to epidemiologists, who solely study COVID-19 is 
you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Right. They're only focused on how do we stop the, the, the rate of COVID-19 infections? How do we stop the rate of, uh, of people getting sick from COVID-19? They are not thinking at all about every other trade-off that we're making in order to achieve that goal. And what are some of those trade-offs? One of them involves school, right? Kids, particularly low-income kids who are not getting an education right now because even though they have almost no chance of being hospitalized from COVID-19 uh, out of a sort of, you know, paranoid excess, uh, excessive caution are being kept home from school. So if you actually bring kids back to, back from school, first of all, we have emerging evidence that for whatever reason, the virus does not seem to be able to really attach to kids in the same way it attaches to older people. They're just not getting infected at the same level, and they're certainly not getting as sick. Now, one, one thing you could hear from the epidemiologist types is, well, if you have more kids in school, then more people get infected, and those people who are infected may then infect their elderly relatives or something like that. Yes, that, that, that's a concern, um, and what you can do to address that is to make sure that people who do live with their grandparents, kids, kids who live with their grandparents, uh, stay home. Uh, elderly teachers or staffers at schools stay home with paid leave, so, so they're okay. Uh, and you do that, and you can get the majority of kids back in school. And, and, and I think as you sort of implied, it's not just about the kids and their education. It's also about the parents who are unable to work because they're having to stay home with their children. Think of the single mom who's a pharmacist who has, you know, who works for an essential business, CVS or Walgreens, say, but she can't go to her job because doing so means she has to leave her kids at home by themselves. That's the situation we've placed so many parents in because of this uh, overly uh, uh, aggressive uh, lockdown. Right, and, and, and the, the essential attitude of so many school districts and politicians and politicians in charge of school districts is, hey, if we can't do it one size fits all like we do education, then we're not going to do it at all. So to your point about being surgical and just commonsensical about uh, those that have a more uh, 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 an environment that is more dangerous for some individual, then we'll accommodate that environment. Well, if if we're going to if we're going to separate Johnny from the kids and he's going to have to stay at home and do distance learning, that's not fair for Johnny. So we're just not going to do anything. It's sort of what you've seen with distance learning initially from a lot of schools where it was, hey, some kids don't have a laptop or some kids don't have uh, 4G. And so we're not going to do any distance learning. Well, look, and also you've got the situation where perhaps I haven't seen any actual quotes about this, but I wouldn't be shocked to see public sector union bosses types saying, oh, well, you know, like, this is great. We're, we're, we're all getting paid and we don't have to do anything. So let's let's stick with that in the name of public safety. Right. right. So you, you have certain political actors or special interests that love the fact that schools are closed and yet and yet teachers are still getting paid. And, and look, safety matters and we do want teachers to be safe. But we also want children to learn and we want parents to be able to work. And so the key is how do we do all those things in a safe way? And we absolutely can. Uh, I want to pick up with strategic implementation when we come back with Ovik Roy, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. We'll be right back after this. Before we get back to our discussion with uh, Ovik Roy of making workplaces safe spaces, I want to uh, update you on a deal to see No Safe Spaces, which is available to watch on uh, at nosafespaces.com for a limited time, 
No Safe Spaces, as we've been talking about on the show for the last couple of weeks, the number one political documentary of 2019, put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, that focuses on the assault free speech is under on college campuses and social media platforms uh, in Hollywood, of course. And for a limited time, uh, and for Dan Prof Show listeners, you can use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes and cut away coat, perfect fits. Putting on the Ritz. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Obi Gray. I wanted to pick up on the uh, issue of the importance employers play in return to work. It seems uh, axiomatic, but you have so much focus on the government providing the plan for back to work. Ultimately, it's going to be employers that implement. Look, ultimately, this is going to rise or fall uh, at the granular level. Uh, Employers and employees working together to figure out a system that works for them, that keeps people safe that makes employees believe they're safe at work. So whether that's temperature testing and social distancing or whatever forms those take per the guidelines, recommendations, ideas, it may, that may germinate from the bottom up. Imagine that rather than the top down, people are going to figure it out. That's the way it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, this sort of waiting for the magic secret plan to be delivered by some task force or some governor about how it's all going to fall into place for everybody simultaneously is just magical thinking. Yeah, I totally agree. But what's most important is for the government to, in a sense, get out of the way or at least trust adults to be responsible and do the right thing. No employer is going to benefit from a major outbreak of COVID in their factory or their office. No school is going to benefit from people getting sick. So let's let schools have the option. Let's let companies have the option to come up with creative ways to make their workplaces safer. You know, there was a situation in Michigan where a car wash company that has those automated car washes where you, you, know, you, you push a couple buttons and you drive through the car wash. The governor there forced those car washes to close, even though there's zero human interaction when you drive through the automated car wash. I mean, that's the kind of bureaucratic stupidity that is going on. And instead of having this mentality of how do we shut everything down because that's how I virtue signal how, how, care, how much I care about public health, Instead, let's have a system where we say, how do we get as much of the economy back online as possible? And our plan, the plan that we've produced at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, is centered around that mentality. And one of the one of the other areas, just just sort of the philosophical approach I like about your plan, uh, aligning incentives. Uh, so aligning, excuse me, aligning interests through incentives. And so you suggest a couple of things: incentivizing employers on the deployment of testing with tax credits, incentivizing consumers to use contact tracing apps, again, similarly with tax credits. So provide tax relief that encourages responsible behavior. Also, maybe a little bit stimulative, too, because it gets people back in circulation faster. Absolutely. And, and that's the whole thing, right? We want to make sure that there's kind of, in a sense, two things you got to do. you got to lift the restrictions in a responsible way so people can go back to work and go back to school. And then you also have to increase public confidence in being able to go back to school and going to a restaurant or going to a shop and knowing that they're not going to get infected, getting on that airplane, 
at O'Hare, right? So those are things you have to do too. And so what we do in the plan is we talk about all the steps where Congress and state governments can help incentivize or create the environment in which more people feel safe and secure. He is Ovik Roy. He's the co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center, editor for Forbes Opinion. And uh, I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show his strategy for bringing people back to work during COVID-19. Ovik, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks a lot. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. There's been a lot of reporting on this over the last couple of days, and some of it's confusing with what appears to be competing reports from the House Intelligence Committee and now the Senate Intelligence Committee as to who did or didn't do what when it came to the Russian collusion investigation into Trump world. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist and founder of Just the News. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I got to be with you. So there was a lot of crowing in D.C. yesterday after the Senate Intelligence Committee report was released, suggesting that uh, nobody at CIA did anything wrong, there was no uh, use of spy craft to improperly surveil or investigate the president or his allies. And so all of the deep state stuff is just so much a right wing hoax. Yeah, listen, there are two competing political views in Washington that all now finally agree that the FBI did a horrific job in the Russia collusion case. They deceived the FISA court. They got improper FISA warrants. Now, everybody agrees on that. We didn't agree on that two years ago, but now there seems to be widespread agreement. So now the question turns to, did our intelligence community get the assessment right? And Senator Richard Burr, Senator Mark Warner, bipartisan leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, think the intelligence community got it right. Devin Nunez has a very different opinion. He thinks the intelligence community got a lot right. They got the fact that Russia hacked and bought Facebook ads and did other things to meddle in the election. But he thinks that they got the assessment that Russia was specifically trying to help Trump win and Hillary lose. They got that wrong. Well, what's happening is that these declassifications are starting to build a body of evidence that supports the Nunez theory. And why is that? We have documents that were released in the last 10 days that show now that the CIA and the FBI both knew, both were warned, both concluded that Russia had fed misinformation to Christopher Steele to create a derogatory negative portrait of Donald Trump. If you're trying to help Donald Trump win, you wouldn't be feeding his opponent negative information that would potentially come out at the end of the election and harm his election chances or the beginning of his presidency. So the Devin Nunez theory is getting a lot more evidence to back it up, and I don't think this is something we're going to put aside. I think it's going to be a debate. I just talked to the top spy that the CIA had in Russia for many years, the station chief, Dan Hoffman, he is now saying for the first time 
the intelligence community got this wrong. So he's disagreeing with the Senate, and he's a career guy on the front lines who you know, was undercover in Moscow for many years. So I think this debate's going to rage on, but that's what it pivots on, and this new evidence is beginning to change some of the debate about this. Uh, Fred Flight's a CIA analyst, as you know, too, also disagrees with the uh, the Senate intelligence report and uh, agrees that uh, Nunez's report is uh, more accurate. And then there's Andy McCarthy, who basically says, the Senate intelligence report is irrelevant because I don't know what even he basically said. I don't even know what even people are talking about. They're silent on all the questions that matter. The, the, yeah. the Senate intelligence report is actually just a big nothing burger. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's a Johnny come lately. It was probably written months and months ago. And then it was probably put out as, as elements and components of the intelligence community worried about what this new information is uh, saying as it emerges now in these declassifications. It's a classic way that uh, the intelligence bureaucracy can try to muddle the picture a little bit in, in the face of some very difficult revelations. I mean, the truth of the matter is much of our intelligence community knew the steel dossier was bad. Uh, and we're warning about it going all the way back to 2016 and warning about steel going back to 2015. But now with that coming out, I think a lot of people want to find ways to deflect and blunt uh, what's going to be a very raw and uncomfortable picture for our intelligence community. Listen, the CIA does great work most of the time. There's just been some bad intelligence work around this Russia case. It just has to get cleaned up, and it will over time. Uh, you wrote about uh, something that is uh, declassified but not yet public, and that's the transcripts of the 53 witnesses in the Russian collusion yeah. investigation. Why is it that we do not have those at this juncture? Well, everybody was for this in September of 2018 for two reasons. Democrats thought that Mueller was going to drop a bombshell uh, uh, punch on, on Donald Trump, and Republicans thought they saw some exculpatory information. So in September 2018... Uh, the the uh, House uh, Intelligence Committee, Democrats, Republicans, unanimously voted out these transcripts to be made public. They go through a declassification process. The world changes. All of a sudden, we find out that Robert Mueller's not going to uh, charge President Trump and, uh, and that uh, he concluded there was not collusion going on. And Democrats suddenly soured on the idea of these transcripts coming out. And so Adam Schiff, the new chairman, the Democrat, the top Democrat on the committee, he went to the office of um, the director of national intelligence and said, do not share any of these transcripts with Donald Trump or his lawyers, even if declassification requires a, the White House to review. Don't do it. And, and that stopped several of the uh, transcripts from being declassified. And then the other 44, they gave Adam Schiff a long time ago. and He just decided not to release them, even though Congress voted them to be public. So what started as a bipartisan transparency effort uh, ultimately or dissolved into a you know a political don't-help-Donald-Trump effort. And then also this from Lindsey Graham, a webpage that he uh, stood up last week dedicated to the Senate Judiciary Committee's probe into the Crossfire Hurricane investigation of the Trump campaign. Uh, four Carter Page uh, FISA applications were uh, for recently further declassified, and uh, he posted those. And uh, am among other things, and this can't be forgotten in this discussion, is uh, speaking of the word collusion, the collusion between the Adam Schiff's of the world and the D.C. press corps. And one of the things we find in there, uh, as uh, was detailed in a, a good piece in The Federalist, is uh, Adam Schiff's lying. Uh, Adam Schiff lying uh, uh, about what he knew versus what he said he would knew, knowing that the D.C. press corps would pick up his version of events and dismiss Devin Nunez's version of events to try to advance the 
the angle that uh, Schiff and the Democrat and the House Democrats were playing. Regarding yeah, a very good article, and it's really based on these declassified notes. If you go back now, remember, Devin Nunez put out one report saying no collusion and some bad work in the intelligence community, which we now know is true, certainly at the FBI. Uh, and then Adam Schiff came out with a counter report, which was uh, uh, Devin Nunez is wrong. There's no evidence that the Steele dossier was bad. Uh, and that there's no evidence that Russian disinformation was used to deceive this investigation. Most of what Adam Schiff put out in his counter report now is contradicted by the newly declassified evidence. Now, for two and a half years, Adam Schiff got away with saying those things because this evidence remains secret. But I think if people go back now and do a timeline, this is what Adam Schiff said on this day, this day, this day, this day, and here's what the CIA and the FBI knew on those dates and briefed to Congress, I think there's going to be a very glaring gap, and I think that's what the Federalist story was getting at. All right, let me ask you to do a little soothsaying here from uh, <laughs> Attorney General Barr's Uh-oh. interview. Yeah, Attorney General Barr's interview uh, recently, where he said um, uh, this was an interview with uh, Hugh Hewitt, I think, is the interview in right. which he said this, it was. where he said, um, uh, you know, look, uh, there could be indictments before the November election because no candidate for office, no candidate for president, is a, a target, and so um, it's not like it was in 2016. Yeah, I've said this publicly on on television and done a lot of reports. There is the first real evidence in the last few weeks of activity that typically, criminal investigative activity that that typically can lead to indictments or plea bargains. Uh, There's just things going on behind the scenes, uh, witnesses being flipped, um, uh, subpoenas and documents being secured under under formal arrangements that suggest that there may be a small number of indictments when this is all done. I don't think it's going to be a large number. I don't think you're going to see a sweeping number of indictments, but you could see a a number. I would predict that we might see a plea bargain from one or two people and then maybe a couple of indictments. One area where I'm seeing activity focused is, is on this question of the intelligence assessment. Was there political pressure to change the conclusions of the intelligence assessment to make it look worse for Trump? That's an area where the Justice Department and FBI appears to be working on right now. What is the possibility that uh, one uh, of those individuals that could be indicted or uh, participate in a plea bargain has a last name that rhymes with homie or menin? (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen a lot of focus on James Comey in this recent activity. I have seen some focus on the CIA and, and, and issues related around Brennan. I think it's too early to say whether Brennan's a target or a subject of the investigation. But there appears to be a focus on communications between the CIA and the FBI in in late 2016, early 17, trying to determine was the CIA telling the FBI one thing in private and then giving a different story in public. And that could be a very important thing. Sometimes people get tripped up not by the crimes they committed in, in the uh, in the uh, in the investigation, but in the cover up. And I, one of the things I would be would not be surprised they're looking at is false testimony. Did somebody do something behind the scenes and then give a, a false statement or a, a false testimony in public? I'd keep an eye on that. I think that may be one of the focal points of this ongoing investigation. And to keep on an eye on all things related to this, uh, make sure you read justthenews.com. John Solomon's site. John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist and founder of Just the News. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, news out this morning that's interesting. Um, all the caveats apply here with respect to methodology and accuracy of testing, uh, just as uh, we talked about uh, earlier in the program with uh, Luis Pedro Calo, uh, the uh, big data biology lab uh, per investigator at uh, Fudan University in Shanghai about methodology with respect to antibody testing. But uh, CNBC reporting this morning that uh, New York antibody study estimates 13.9% of residents have had the coronavirus, and this according to Andrew Cuomo, the governor there. Well, if that is if that turns out to be on the mark, that certainly recasts our understanding of the outbreak in New York and uh, also starts to drive the conversation about the difference between the reported cases and uh, the actual number of cases, you know, all of those individuals, again, that are asymptomatic uh, and have developed antibodies. Because, uh, again, according to um, the uh, data that's posted at realclearpolitics.com, New York State currently has about two round numbers, 262,000 confirmed cases. So the 262,000 you're talking about New York has roughly, let's say, 25 million people. So uh, 14% of that is like 3.5 million. And that's about 14x, 14 times the number of confirmed cases. So that means the numbers we're looking at in terms of uh, fatality rate, uh, 106 per 100,000, which is you know, by far the highest in the nation, uh, is significantly less, right, by a factor of 14 uh, with just the, that uh, information. And it just changes the way we understand the lethality of the virus, which is important because, to beat this drum, so much public policy decision-making has been predicated on the real and projected lethality rates. Speaking of New York, you heard earlier in the show from AOC. Let's hear from her again, and let's also hear from the aforesaid Andrew Cuomo. Talking about getting back to work, the sense of urgency, some would argue too much of a sense of urgency in certain states like Brian Kemp in Georgia. I'm not arguing that, but others have, including the president. It's happening uh, all over the country the protests and the desire to to modify shelter in place orders, if not begin phase one reopenings. What about the sense of urgency in New York state from the leading lights there that enjoy so much media attention for different reasons? AOC, because, uh, you know, she's the uh, leader of the spice socialist spice girls. And uh, Andrew Cuomo, because the press has turned him into Governor George S. Patton Cuomo. What do they have to say about getting back to work and about workers? The sense of urgency about your livelihood and your life. AOC first again for a refresher. There's a lot that we could be doing right now, but ultimately. The. I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we 
you know, have this discussion about going, going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. Yeah, we need to get one of those public sector jobs, maybe become a member of Congress. Just uh, post some videos on uh, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, you know, be a social media star. That's not like working at all. Uh, it's such an interesting philosophy, and um, one wonders if the philosophy of no, let's not go back to work, how broad the appeal will be. That should be picked up by the president, by Republicans. <laughs> uh, work is slavery to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, it's, you know, traditional Marxism. Yeah, the uh, proletariat is in chains, right? They have nothing to lose but their chains, you, you workers. Okay. I don't know that that's uh, the larger attitude across America. I don't know how much play that has. Uh, unfortunately, it probably has more play than it used to because of the government interventions and because of the effective job that the political class has done in frightening people to death, having them fleeing good sense, running to the government for shelter. In some respects, out of necessity, because the government took stuff away from them. So the government has responsibility to compensate them for their taking. I, I've said that from the outset, but but I mean that the the implications of that philosophy that work is slavery, animal farmish. Andrew Cuomo, America's governor. The what if the economy failing? Worse than death? Is equals death Very for, because no, of mental that, illness, the people, no, the people stuck at home. No, it doesn't. It doesn't equal death. Economic hardship, yes, very bad. Not death. Emotional stress from being locked in a house, very bad. Not death. Uh, um, domestic violence on the increase, very bad. Not death. And not death of someone else. See, that's what we have to factor into this equation. Yeah, it's your life. Do whatever you want. But you're not responsible for my life. You have a responsibility to me. It's not just about you. You have a responsibility to me, right? We started here saying it's not about me. It's about we. Get your head about the, around the we concept. So it's not all about you. It's about me, too. It's about we. It's about we and we being you subordinating yourself to me. That's the we. And by me, I mean the state. Don't think so? So if you're saying that, is there a fundamental right to work if the government can't get me the money when I need it? Is there yeah, a you fundamental go, by the way, right you want to go to work? Go take a job as an essential worker. Do it tomorrow. Right? You're working. I am. You're an essential worker. So go take a job as an but, essential worker. But, but the people aren't hiring because of the No, pandemic. there are people hiring. 
You can get a job as an essential worker. So now you can go to work and you can be an essential worker and you're not going to kill anyone. Yeah. You want to be a worker? You want to go back to work and become an essential worker, you know, like an abortionist or a licensed dope dealer, rather than being a non-essential killer that you are at present. Simple as that. Got a problem? You should. This is Dan Proft. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Wednesday night's briefing. Uh, of course, this made uh, all the headlines Wednesday night into Thursday, and that was President Trump uh, publicly disagreeing with the decision being made by Georgia Governor uh, Kemp, but uh, uh, understanding and communicating that it was his decision to make, Brian Kemp. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are they're great. They've been strong, resolute, but at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. Lord Black, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. What did you make of, of that moment? Is that uh, Trump just taking the opportunity to um, exercise a little jujitsu with Democrats, show willingness to buck his party and even an ally in uh, hewing to uh, the standards that the White House has set forth? Look, I, I get very uneasy mind reading these people. I think too many commentators just okay. take liberties with saying what somebody's motive is when they do things. What I would say is that tactically, uh, I, I think the president, in taking the larger picture, and this is part of it, has handled it very skillfully. I don't, by that, I don't mean in a, in a dishonest or devious way, but just very skillfully. Uh, he, he, if we recall, he started out being accused of being a bit blasé about it. He put an end to that. He was accused of being anti-science and, and a, you know, a flatterer, the moron. He brought in these unquestionably, unquestionably qualified scientists on, on the task force the vice president had and had them speak got in lockstep with them. Uh, he was Mr. Lockdown. We're at war, the invisible enemy. Uh, and then he produced guidelines that these scientists agreed to. And the Democrats, now here I will depart my rule. I, I don't doubt that to some extent concerned with matters, but it seems fairly obvious what they want is a long lockdown to create an economic situation so desperate they may have chance of electing a completely unfeasible candidate against a president who, whatever his personality foibles, has been very successful and very effective. And, uh, and so now we have uh, the, the, uh, the Democrats saying we need a prolonged lockdown, and Trump is just trying to open things up to win votes. 
And Trump is saying the Democrats are trying to keep you out of work, and we have a scientifically validated program for relaunching the country, and we want to get on with it. And when people, including a Republican colleague of mine, are, are accelerating too fast, my position is I warn him that he's outside our guidelines, but he's the governor, he's on the spot, and if he wants to take responsibility for it, that's fine. It seems to me that... It's a bit of brilliant move. He's turned the tables completely. The Democrats are the party of stay out of work, stay in misery, go bankrupt, live like a mole, uh, even though there are over 500 newly unemployed people for every single fatality that's occurred, and the fatalities are coming down. And, and uh, you know, Trump is the person who broke the curve, flattened the curve of the coronavirus and produced a plan for relaunching the country, and and uh, economically speaking, and, and is executing the plan. I, I think he looks good. And and the, the Democrats are all over the place, too, right? Uh, first, he's an authoritarian who's a, a danger to undermining the Constitution or a representative republic, and then he's not authoritarian enough when it comes to telling what the governors what to do. Hey, hey, back off. Let our governors do what they do. Hey, 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 why aren't you telling our governors what to do? And meanwhile, the Democratic governors and mayors are, 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 are the most authoritarian clack of, uh, uh, of office holders that's been seen in the United States since the old Confederacy. I mean, you know, the old Southern segregationists. I mean, uh, some of these, I don't know quite what it's like in, in, um, in Chicago, though I'm prepared to fear the worst of your mayor, but uh, <laughs> the antics of people like de Blasio and so on are just, it's just incredible that the city of New York could have as its mayor such a jackass as that. Uh, when we uh, come back with uh, Conrad Black, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the briefings and how he thinks those are working out strategically for President Trump. More with Conrad Black, financier, columnist, and member of the British House of Lords right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Conrad Black. He's a financier, columnist, and member of the British House of Lords, and. Uh, uh, Conrad Black, I, I don't know how Keith Koffler was able to hack the NBC News website, but uh, he was able to post an op-ed uh, that's entitled Trump's coronavirus briefings are chaotic, but the president's response deserves more credit. Uh, and he points just to a handful of uh, top lines that uh, are underreported. He's listening to the experts, communicating with the nation, keeping federal power in check, staying positive and helping the states. What's wrong with any of that? Uh, well, you're 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 asking the choir what he thinks of him. I mean, I I, <laughs> I think that's an accurate description, and nothing's wrong with it. Like, I think the Democrats are so 
again, I'm slightly departing my rule against uh, taking liberties, imputing motives to others, but I, I think they find it terribly frustrating to deal with this president because, first of all, they couldn't take him seriously, and and he was a joke as a candidate. Then when he was going to win the nomination, he would have no chance in the election. He was unelectable until he was elected. Then they chinned themselves on this theory that he was so outrageous because he was attacking the entire system, the establishment of both parties. I mean, the Bushes, as much as uh, at that time, as much as Obama and the Clintons, uh, that, that, that it had to be a fraudulent election. So they invested in this completely insane Russian hoax. I mean, no person ever nominated by an American political party to the office of president would ever conceived or considered such a such a monstrous thing as uh, colluding illegally with a foreign power to rig an election in the United States. And um, and then they produced this totally spurious impeachment where he was charged with matters that aren't impeachable and produced no evidence that he'd even committed those acts, which were in fact inoffensive in themselves. And, and, and now they, they simply have no idea how to deal with them. So whatever he says they oppose, no matter what it is. They're the ultimate reactionaries, and it makes them hypocrites because they face in all four directions on everything over over a, a, a relatively short span of time. It, it also may, it makes them quite ghoulish, doesn't it? Uh, there was an exchange earlier this week when the study came that was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine came out about hydroxychloroquine as a potentially uh, effective antiviral, and it suggested, this study suggested it wasn't. Some other studies have suggested it was. All of that should be taken uh, under advisement by doctors when uh, consulting and making treatment recommendations to their patients, as FDA Commissioner uh, Dr. Hahn said, and we're still in clinical trials with that, as well as all sorts of other potential antivirals. So we'll see, get the results early summer, and then we'll be able to analyze and make a categorical statement. So that's a, a positively reasonable and proper approach. And yet sure. it, it was the, the press and Democrats like like spiking the football. Like, see, we told you, we told you, hooray, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. It's just so, it's well, such a bizarre response. That, they, they, they left off the left off the dock without looking to see if there was water in the pool. When uh, when some guy tried to self-medicate instead of buying hydroxychloroquine, uh, chloroquine. chloroquine. Yeah. He, he bought he bought hydroxychloroquine phosphate, which I understand is used to clean the aquarium tanks and you know for, to keep the environment for the fish proper and, and you know such as in your shed aquarium or something. And, uh, and 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 he died. But then they blamed this on on Trump. You say, I mean, they're really they're really uh, scraping the barrel when you get down to that kind of thing. Um, coming out of this, so you're, what you're describing the left doing in, in America, and, and I certainly presume uh, elsewhere in the Western world, uh, you know, the government-centric party is using this as an opportunity to expand government. We certainly see this happening in certain states, as you were describing earlier. What, what is your larger, largest concern? For example, mine is what seems to be a uh, concentra- an increasing concentration of power with big tech oligarchs and government commissars and the disappearance of the middle the longer this goes on. Yeah, I always have faith, especially in the United States and Canada, that the middle class appears to be more 
uh, torpid and languid than it is, and 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 it comes back to life from time to time in a way that asserts itself very decisively. And and I, I what I I'm, I am developing a kind of unscientific theory, a rank intuition, in fact, that that Trump's position in real electoral terms is much stronger than the polls make it appear. Mm. Uh, and, and I think when the country gets down to considering what he's achieved, and I'm basing this in my view that he that the country will be back to work and in a quite a prosperous state by by election day, and he will have been judged to have managed a very severe crisis very skillfully and, and brought the country back from it quickly. And on that basis, when you compare him to the alternative, and I, I don't want to get into these speculations about about uh, Joe Biden's mental state and so on but he is a completely unfeasible alternative and and uh, and I I think the president will win easily and I I think that Mr Nixon's silent majority is there they're not being demonstrative now because they have nothing particularly to demonstrate about but they but their voice will be heard on election day as it usually is and and um uh, I, I, I think that these people who are aggregating too much power in themselves and are becoming too arbitrary will pay for it. I, I think rather than that becoming a trend of the erosion of individual liberties and the whole uh, spirit behind the residual powers clause in the Bill of Rights that unallocated powers uh, are decentralized to the states or to the people themselves, uh, I, I think in, instead of the erosion of that, what it's creating is a revulsion against the erosion of that, which which can only be expressed by the voters by voting. And but it, uh, I mean, it doesn't do any good to carry a placard around Chicago City Hall complaining about not being able to sit in a park bench or something. But but it it certainly does be sort of throwing people out of office that they were very comfortable in and thought they were. Uh, immune to uh, serious opposition in, in, in continuing. He is Conrad Black, financier, columnist, member of the British House of Lords. Check out his latest piece at amgreatness.com. Democrats underestimate Trump at their own peril. Lord Conrad Black, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. You see, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. It felt good to be out of the rain in the desert. Can't remember your name Cause there ain't no one For to give you no pain The more you listen, the more you'll know This is the Dan Proft Show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Mentioned earlier in the show, Harvard uh, recanting its uh, announcement that it would uh, return the $9 million it got from Department of Education grant funding through the CARES Act. I'd like another uh, recantation. Well, I'd like a recantation. I'd like the original refusal to accept the money or a clawback of the money as needed, which is the same thing that should happen to Harvard and, frankly, all of higher ed. As I've said before, take that money that was funneled through the Department of Education for higher ed, which uh, has uh, seen uh, tuition increases exponentially higher than inflation over the last 40 years because of government subsidies. Take all that money back and give it to small businesses, those having to deal with the 
Chase Bank, as we uh, learned about earlier in the program with Ken Huffman, uh, who didn't get loans the first time around with the, uh, the payroll protection program, use every available dollar to keep people on unemployment, uh, keeping people in uh, employment rather than on unemployment after you've seen almost 27 million people file first time unemployment claims in the last five weeks, for goodness sakes. Same thing with media. Axios, Jim Vanderhigh posting, Axios qualifies for PPP loan. We qualify for just shy of $5 million bucks. Along with quick moves we made early in the crisis to reduce non-personnel expenses, the loan ensures we can avoid layoffs and pay cuts for our almost 200-person staff for the rest of the year, regardless of how much the overall economy deteriorates. Oh, good. First, I was worried about uh, the possibility of layoffs or pay cuts in the public sector. Now, thankfully, I won't have to worry about it in the media sector because they're taking federal tax dollars. And I understand the media's business. I point out all the time to remind people that uh, they're in the, in the business of serving their consumers, their customers, not everybody, not the public interest as they cloak themselves in. They have a customer base and they're feeding that customer base. But, you know, now the state run media state run because they were fellow travelers ideologically is literally going to be the state run media state finance. But don't worry, Jim Vanderhei says we're going to put uh, disclaimers on stories we do when we're covering government and business because of the fact that we're going to be in part government financed. Uh, I don't want to see government entangled with media. I don't want to see government entangled with church. I don't, This irreparably damages credibility. And I understand business. I understand churches are suffering, too, the lack of collection plates. You have to find another way. This is a different kind of thing when it comes to the state, as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of uh, faith, uh, one thing you can do during this downtime, particularly depending on what state you're in, uh, is uh, view things on the streaming services that uh, affirm your faith. With all the choices, what can you watch? I've got an idea. Patterns of Evidence is it. Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, is a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. Investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results are monumental. Right now you can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus at home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.